Welcome to Conversations. I'm Bill Crystal, and I'm very glad to be joined today by my friend Steve Hayward, now teaching constitutional law and political science at the University of California at Berkeley. I'm going to be an inmate for the next three years there. That's excellent. <laughs> when you were a grad student at Claremont, did you expect to end up as a distinguished professor at Berkeley? <laughs> Not in my wildest well, imagination. Congratulations on that appointment. Well, and author of many books, articles, uh, all of them valuable on a wide diversity of topics, I guess maybe most famously, your two-volume I would almost say definitive or authoritative study, The Age of Reagan, which came out when? Uh, well, the first volume was 2001. Actually, arrived in bookstores on September 10, 2001. Is that right? Yeah. And then the second volume took a little while longer and came out in 2009. I remember that. I had wanted to be one volume, and it grew to two, as these things sometimes So how did, how did you decide? I mean, I'll, I'll begin with that, since that's such an important. I, really, I, I highly recommend that book to all viewers, but... Tell us, uh, how did you come to write it? Yeah, well, uh, two, there were two inspirations for it. Uh, one was, I had a premonition in the early 90s, for a bunch of reasons, that Edmund Morris's official biography would be a disappointment. I didn't think it would be crazy, as it turned out to be. I just thought it would be narrow in scope and wouldn't capture the fullness of the Reagan story. It wouldn't put him in proper context. Right. Uh, and that's why I thought there was going to be room for another major work that put Reagan on a larger canvas in the style of Churchill's Marlboro. Uh, or I think you know, my model of biography for an American is Lord Charnwood's biography of Lincoln, which is 100 years old, and I still think the best biography of Lincoln, if you want to understand the fullness of Lincoln's uh, political impact. Uh, and I was right about Morris. Morris really wasn't interested in American politics, and I think that's the key to the defects of the book. Uh -huh. And I think Reagan is most interesting in the context of um, his political ideas and his political life more than his personal life. I think as an actor, he's no more interesting than any other Hollywood celebrity, really. Uh, and, you know, that's a dying art of writing what I call the analytical narrative, right? Uh, historian, academic historians don't do it anymore. Uh, journalists do it, but I don't think they get the interpretation right. It's just a series of facts. And so I think, uh, you know, my literary models are people like William Manchester, whose biographies of Churchill are the most popular with readers, even though Martin Gilbert's maybe is better in a lot of ways. Uh, or uh, John Lukacs, the Hungarian historian, writes yeah. in that same style. Paul Johnson, of course. But that's about it. And I thought there uh, was room for that kind of book about Reagan. And the age of Reagan implies, I, mean, I guess that's modeled, is that on Arthur Schlesinger, right. Right. the age of Jackson? Is that? Uh, well, the age of the Jackson, age of Roosevelt. the age of Roosevelt. Right, the age right. of Roosevelt more was, relevantly, right. I suppose. Yeah. Well, this was partly payback, right? Uh, you know, the, uh, the first volume of Schlesinger's famous unfinished work really was um, The Crisis of the Old Order. And it really was a partisan attack on Republicans in the 1920s. And uh, Schlesinger was a really graceful writer and capable at times of some real insight, I think, especially the Vital Center book in the 50s. But, you know, those books were kind of partisan. Well, I didn't want to write a partisan book, but I wanted to write in that similar style that made the case for Reagan. I mean, I'm sympathetic, but not uncritical. And so I called the first volume of mine the, the crisis of the old liberal order. <laughs> so payback, right? Turnabout is fair play. And the age of Reagan implies that he wasn't just one interesting figure who right. had the presidency for X years and then was somehow he did shape and age. I think well, that's right. Uh, you know, I think uh, even liberals, uh, most interestingly, Richard Reeves, who's, you know, always disliked Reagan and then wrote a fairly complimentary biography of him around 1999 or 2000, I think, or maybe 2004. And what he said there was, is, uh, boy, I got Reagan wrong. And in fact, Bill Clinton had to join the Reagan revolution, he said, which is a little bit exaggerated, but not entirely, right? He, you know, Bill Clinton understood that liberalism, it took him a while to figure this out, but liberalism was still on probation, so he had to go for 
free trade, uh, capital gains tax cut, certain other measures, balanced right. budget. Tough on crime. Uh, yeah. Tough on crime, exactly. And uh, so that's, a, I think you can say that the age of Reagan, and of course you have the Gingrich Revolution and so forth. I think you can say the age of Reagan extended in the same way that Roosevelt and the New Deal uh, had a long reign in American politics. And as our friend Michael Barone likes to point out, the high tide of the New Deal in certain ways was not to the late 50s when the Democrats had some of their really big election victories in the House and Senate. And that's what you saw with Republicans is uh, you, Republicans mm. didn't finally capture the House till the mid 1990s. And and then, uh, you know, only in the last decade, if you had a Republican control of both houses a couple of times. Yeah, that's interesting. So, I mean, if I add a point, you know, one of Reagan's biggest problems that became apparent when I wrote the book is that uh, the fact that he didn't control the Senate, uh, sorry, didn't control the House uh, was a big problem for him, obviously. But even Republican control of the Senate was not a sure thing for him because in those days you had, I think by my count, 16 moderate or liberal Republican senators. Hmm. And he often complained in his diaries that Republicans were a bigger problem to him than the Democrats. And, you know, he, he'd say unkind things about Mark Hatfield, Bob Packwood, Mac Mathias. Uh, what's his name from Connecticut? To Lowell Weicker. Lowell Weicker in yeah. his diary, he called him a no good, pompous fathead. <laughs> So, you know, even that story showed that Reagan was ahead of his party and, and ahead of his times in certain ways. And, and everyone appeals to Reagan on, our, on the conservative right. side, the Republican side of the aisle appeals to Reagan these days, or at least until very recently, maybe until until Trump was the Republican nominee who doesn't right. talk much about Reagan, I guess. Uh, people have him basically right. I mean, what, what's your sense of that? You wouldn't expect the liberals to get Reagan right, but what about the conservatives? Right. It's, um, I have mixed feelings about this. Um, on the one hand, it's nice to see Reagan vindicated, especially if you're old enough as I am to remember all the Republicans, including a lot of sort of mainstream conservatives like Bob Dole, who thought he would be a disaster right. for the party, right? And who Bob Dole fought him a lot, uh, right, from the Senate. Uh, uh, and, you know, thought he would lose, or if he won, he would be a disaster in the White House. Okay. And so now he's, everyone wants to be a Reaganite Republican. On the other hand, an awful lot of people who nowadays claim to be following the legacy of Reagan, to my mind, have spent very little time studying him closely to realize why he was so successful. And it wasn't just that he was optimistic about America. That's right. sort of the, you know, the Sean Hannity talking point, unfortunately. Um, uh, uh, it was a lot more than that. He was a very disciplined person, thought carefully and seriously about his political rhetoric, uh, worked very hard, and a part of his hard work and discipline was concealing how hard he worked, right? That was part of his shtick about, they say hard work never killed anybody, but I say why take chances, right? right. And as it was part of the old line that, that people always understood that he believed that being underestimated could be to his advantage. So he did play that very well. And that was um, truly self-conscious. I'm, I'm absolutely convinced that was very self-conscious. I mean, we know from the documents that have come out how much he would mark up documents, how much of his own writing he did. Right. Things like writing his own talking points for some of the Soviet summits, you know, just sort of ignoring what the State Department sent him and impressing his own people who were worried about it, right? Um, and in particular, I just sort of mentioned one thing about his rhetoric. Uh, you know, the, most of the Republican candidates go around, except for conspicuously Donald Trump, saying that they're conservatives, right? We're conservative Republicans, we need conservative policies. And that plays to the base, plays to you and me. Reagan almost never talked about how he was a conservative for mm -hmm. general audiences. He would before the Conservative Political Action Conference. Uh, but he usually always uh, talked about uh, how he represented common sense views that everyone should agree with. Mm. Uh, he would never have made a remark like the 47% remark that doomed Mitt Romney. Uh, he, would, he didn't think that way. He would never have talked that way. Uh, so that showed, I think, some insight and some skill at rhetoric. Um, 
you know, he said at the very beginning uh, in his first race for governor in 1966 in California, he said, look, Democrats outnumber Republicans by at least a million voters in California. That means I can't win with just Republicans. I've got to appeal to a lot of Democrats. Uh, so I, I think that the subtleties of the man, the discipline of him, uh, the depth of his thinking, how much reading he did, uh, I think that's missing uh, or not appreciated by a lot of people today who look to him rightly as a great model to follow, uh, but uh, as I say, haven't done their homework. That's so interesting because, you know, one somehow thinks he was the most, I suppose, ideological, you might say, president, maybe the most ideological nominee, really, of the Republican Party in modern times. Right. Uh, I was about to say yet, but maybe yet's not the right <laughs> What, what part of speech is that? Whatever that is, uh, yeah, yeah, no, right. You know, transition. I mean, or and he was also disciplined and very conscious that you couldn't just run as an ideological conservative. Maybe he learned that from uh, something for Goldwater, who got clobbered, but uh, maybe he knew it before. I don't know. But I mean, it's an interesting point that the, the two don't, the two can go together. Strong yeah. persu- convictions. Yes. You know, taking on the mainstream of your own party in some ways, but also being quite subtle and disciplined about how to make your pitch to the electorate at large. Well, I think it also bears mentioning that he was never a checklist conservative. Uh, by that, I mean, you know, he had a he had a very independent streak to him. I think, by the way, that was marks out people like him and Churchill, who was also distrusted by his party, remember, right? right? Uh, he had a very independent and idiosyncratic conservatism. We'll think of one of the famous things he liked to say. He loved quoting Tom Paine to say, we have it in our power to make the world over again. Tom Paine, the radical, right? Right. And Reagan once explained that back in the 60s. He says, actually, Tom Paine is today's conservative. It's the liberals who've given up on various aspects of freedom and whatnot. Uh, but, you know, that statement used to drive people like Russell Kirk and George Will out of their mind. You know, George okay. Will wrote, George, of course, would love Reagan, but George Will wrote, yeah, that's the most unconservative sentiment imaginable. Anytime, anywhere, that is nonsense. And, you know, Reagan's uh, uh, gravestone at the Reagan Library says, I know in my heart that mankind is good. Well, that's not quite the view that Madison lays out in, what is that, I think, Federalist 55, about the mixed character, right. venal, but also but there's some things that make Republican government possible. Uh, so, you know, that was uh, very different from your traditional, more dour, you know, Russell Kirk-style, Burkean conservatism, I think. Uh, and then, uh, you know, Reagan was very imaginative on policy terms. Uh, you know, the remember that uh, the Kennedy tax cut, which is now conservative orthodoxy, Barry Goldwater was against it. Most Republicans were against it. It went against fiscal orthodoxy. And when Reagan ran in 76, he ran as an old-fashioned budget cutter. And that turned out to be a problem for him. And then by 1980, he grabbed onto the Kemp-Roth tax cut, instantly understood the logic of it, explained it exceedingly well. Uh, and when the less the Republican establishment was still very doubtful about that idea, right? Um, and... But you can see Reagan's imagination and, and facility at work. And there's, there's one moment in the famous debate with Jimmy Carter. Everyone remembers, there you go again. But there's a moment in the middle when Jimmy Carter says, Governor Reagan wants to have this inflationary tax cut that'd be terrible for the budget and everything. And, and you know, hey, Governor, your response. And Reagan just asked a rhetorical question, which showed that he understood economic logic so well. He says, I don't understand why it is that if uh, I let people keep and spend their own money, it's inflationary. But it's not inflationary if you take it and spend it. Boom, right? Yeah. yeah. There's no answer for that. Plus, you got to say that last. Very effective answer. Yeah. Now, I think the imagination is a very good point, and I hadn't really thought about that. I mean, the degree to which he, and people say, well, he was a conventional, so Bob Dole, Republican, right. in terms of his economics in 76, and Kemp persuaded him in 1980, or he saw it was politically advantageous or something, and switched. Right. But the willingness to 
switch, not simply for political reasons, I think, but because he right. persuaded himself that it was a, for policy reasons, it was the right thing to do, and a combination probably of policy and politics. Right. I think that's true on a bunch of issues for Reagan. I mean, yeah, now that's another point. I mean, his, he, his conservatism was fresh, really, right. in 1980. It wasn't simply a Xerox of the conservative movement. That's exactly. a disservice to Reagan in a way to think of it that I think that's that right. Way. He was way out ahead of people. Um, you know, I think in foreign policy, there's a really good example of, uh, I think, his prudence in the highest sense of the word, but also his consistency. And this is something that has made me grumpy for a while. So the great liberal revisionism about Reagan is, well, he was great on the Cold War. It's terrible at home, but the Cold War was great. And it was only great because he changed his mind and became an old-fashioned devotee of detente in his second term. Right. And if you look closely, I think that's completely wrong. I think what you see is him appreciating the change in circumstances. Uh, he didn't immediately trust or believe Gorbachev was a potential partner, but he came to believe fairly quickly, having met him, uh, that uh, this might work. Um, and as late as 1988, I this, note this in the book, Reagan gave a very tough speech in Springfield, Massachusetts, in I think March or April, about a month before he was going to Moscow. And essentially, he gave the, you know, the evil empire speech all over again in, in, mm-hmm. uh, in its content and about what our strategy was and why it was bearing fruit. Well, it infuriated Gorbachev. George Shultz arrived in Moscow the next day, and Gorbachev was absolutely apoplectic about it. Uh, so uh, the point is, you can see the consistency of Reagan's thought, you know, and so we trust but verify, and it was, you know, a complicated scene about arms control. Um, uh, but, you know, Reagan said all along, you know, I'm willing to make a deal if they ever get somebody in there who's willing to make a deal on our uh, terms. <laughs> well, and his hostility to nuclear weapons, right. his devotion to the strategic defense issue, right. that was not conservative or hawkish right. or conservative foreign policy establishment orthodoxy at all. And it drove people a little crazy, actually, I think. I mean, uh, not crazy, but they were unhappy about it. Yes. Well, uh, yeah, the, you know, the, this has been known for a while, though it's forgotten. An awful lot of people who you might otherwise think would be for that idea were very unenthusiastic. Cap Weinberger didn't initially think this was a good idea. David Stockman hated it because he just saw budget problems. The Joint Chiefs thought this would upset the apple cart. Reagan was all by himself on that. George Schultz was trying to talk him out of talk uh, of making that proposal a half an hour before he went on the air to give it. He was so opposed to it. And, and what um, moved Reagan in that case, do you think? So? You know, it was, uh, the story goes back so many years. He thought it, there was something literally mad about the mad doctrine, mutual sure destruction. He says, this is no way to live. Uh, there's got to be a defensive system for this. And when people like Edward Teller and others came to him, and also... Um, Secretary of the Navy, whose name I'm forgetting right now, which I shouldn't because he's a friend of my dad's, um, proposed this idea to him and said, we, "John Lehman?" Or, no, he before was Lehman. Uh, actually was the the chief uh, the, the chief of the, naval uh, the operations. Op, the, the, yeah, the, the serving uh, uh, flag officer. Yeah, yeah. Um, I can't remember. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm forgetting names in Middle East. Anyway, yeah. they persuaded him that we now had the technology available to make this happen. It is worth noticing in the speech again, read these things carefully, that he didn't think this was something that could be developed right away. He had like a 20-year time horizon in mind. That all got forgotten in attacks on it. You know, Star Wars, they called it, and, you know, it was the attacks from the media and Ted Kennedy. But he always said this was a long-term project. And guess what? It took about 20 years to finally deploy some systems, not as fully as we could have or should do, but at least uh, it did sort of play out something in the way he thought it would. Yeah, Israel is knocking down right. not the most advanced missiles, right. but at least rockets that are coming. And it's right. actually changed the strategic calculus there. And right. So I don't think anyone thought that was possible when he right. when he gave that speech. I always thought that was kind of genius on his part in, this, in the sense that there was something debilitating for conservatism about having to be the par- better dead than red. And, you know, the nuclear balance is what we need. We need to be stronger, <laughs> ever stronger nuclear deterrent, right. which is fine with me. But 
there was and it was a tough-minded posture. It was better than the alternative, I think, of appeasement or concessions <laughs> right. to the Soviet Union. But there was right. something you just couldn't. Was that really ultimately the vision we had for the next 20, 50 years? Just mutual assured destruction. Right. And in that sense, I think SDI plus his belief that the Soviet Union could fall apart. I mean, that you could undermine it. I mean, A, he happened to be right when most of us thought he wasn't, and I certainly didn't think he was when I got to Washington in 85, 86. Right. I thought it was kind of wishful thinking. But also, I think politically and even more, I don't know, in a deeper way, it was very important to have that vision, you know, right. and, and, and give it some concreteness. And obviously, he couldn't be sure it would work out, but it, it right. turned, I don't know, somehow it was, too, it, was, it was too hard for conservatives to just, you know. No, that's not, absolutely right. I think, uh, uh, you know, most of our friends and, uh, you know, our fathers and, and other people, they thought the Cold War was going to be here to stay. That was right. Henry Kissinger's view, right? right? We're just going to have to figure out how to manage this because the Soviet Union, the point is from a political science point of view, this is a durable form of rule. And Reagan instinctively thought that was wrong. Right. And he, he said at one point in the 70s, he said something that Churchill had said back around 1920 at the time of the Bolshevik Revolution. This is an unnatural form of government. It can't possibly last. Hmm. And that's what Reagan think. It's fundamentally weak. The way he would put it, something like this, I forget the exact quotes, but he'd say, yeah, they can build lots of missiles, but they can't make cornflakes. And that means they have to be fundamentally brittle. Now, there are raging debates about, all right, if we think that, a lot of people weren't sure, how, how do you make a policy for that? And that took quite a while to start to crystallize with things like SDI, but also let's squeeze them economically and call them names. You know, let's put the... Support freedom, freedom support fighters, fighters elsewhere right. in the world. Um, right? Yeah. Uh, but he turned out to be right about that. And, uh, you know, he loved to collect the jokes. I was thinking that you can see this on YouTube. He loved telling jokes about the dysfunction of the Soviet Union. Yes. And he would tell those jokes to Gorbachev. And if you think about the famous Westminster speech in 1982, where he talked about the, sta- the dimensions of the failure are staggering, who talks about another superpower that way in the modern world? It's really an extraordinarily offensive thing to say. Uh, and contemptuous. And several times, especially at their first summit, Gorbachev would say, you know, we get the feeling you really don't respect us very much. Well, that was true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Reagan would always reassure him. You know, Reagan knew how to balance pressing him hard and arguing with being conciliatory. I think he had a sense from that from his, I think, from his days of negotiating uh, in, in uh, Hollywood on labor agreements and in Sacramento when he was governor. We would negotiate directly with the legislature about welfare reform and lots of things. Um, so he's very shrewd that way. Um, but yeah, his fundamental insight turned out to be correct. And, but even he didn't think, uh, he said the, the day the Berlin Wall came down, he went on Nightline that night, just a forgotten interview, and he said, I always thought this wouldn't last. I didn't think it would end this quickly. Is that right? I forgot yeah. that he did that interview. That's yeah. great that he had the chance to do that. I mean, yeah. was, no, I think that's right. Conservatives, in a way, are too, uh, you know, they're too conservative with a little C, and they sort of right. have internalized the mostly correct lesson. Things don't, you can't, be wishful. You can't. Things aren't going to just change, but you want them to change. Life is rough. You know, right. things often go downhill instead of getting better. But then, when Reagan said no in this case, you really there. It's not just wishful thinking. There really is a problem with this regime that right. can can be exploited. He turned out to be more right than more traditional conservatives. And I think the lesson for today would be, you know, the problems we're having with radical Islam in the Islamic world. Is there a parallel there? I'm not sure there is. It's not exact, but I think. That's what conservatives ought to be thinking about I in the totally current situation. I totally agree with that. People are much too fatalistic. I mean, in a way, in reaction to liberal idiocy of, right. you know, religion of peace, there's no problem at all. You know, it's like six people off on the side, but the religion right. has no issues. The conservative reaction is it's a nightmare. It's horrible. It's never going to, can't be fixed. And somehow it's going right. to magically just disappear, I suppose, or be extirpated in some ghastly <laughs> way, right? right? I mean, and I, I very much agree with that. People underestimate the chance for big changes. I mean, I suppose a secular regime is a little different from religion, so you have to think that through, but 
The other thing I'm struck by, I think you stressed this in your book, I always try to do this when I give speeches, I don't know it one-tenth as well as one-hundredth as well as you is, he was such a risk-taker in his own political career. Gives yeah. a speech for Goldwater in 64, surely people must have told him, is that really a prudent campaign to, to invest everything in there in October of 64, he's about to lose by 20 points, you yeah. know? And then he runs for governor, you'll know the facts better than I do, he runs for governor in 66 right. in California against the front runner in the primary, who was the mayor? George ma- Christopher, the mayor of San Francisco. Now stop for a minute and contemplate a Republican mayor of San Francisco Fantastic. in our lifetime. <laughs> Fantastic. But sort of a moderate, but yes. well-respected, right? Yes. And sort of next in line, and right. he's going to be the guy running against the incumbent, Pat Brown. And Reagan clobbers him in the primary, I think. But I don't think that was obvious, right? right. I mean, if you had picked up a, the L.A. Times or the San Francisco right. Chronicle in, I don't know, early 1966, I'm not sure people were saying, oh, Reagan's going to be the nominee. You know, he's right. this actor who right. gave a speech for a presidential candidate who was clobbered right. a year and a half before, right. and uh, and then he defeats the incumbent governor. By a million votes. Yeah. You know, it wasn't even close. Yeah. And, and I mean, so that whole, that, that two-year sequence right. is unusual, you know? Surely there were people telling him, well, run for Congress, take, don't, don't, right. don't go right for the governor's, don't take on Christopher. Right. Is that right? And people yeah. must have been, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, that speech was such a sensation. I think, it, you know, I say it's one of the four speeches that launched a career that made someone president, you know, Cooper Union, or maybe the nominee, and William Jennings Bryan's Cross right. of Gold, although he never won. And then I think you have to reckon Barack Obama's speech in 2004, yes. put him on the map and launched him. And it's Reagan's time for choosing speech, I think, it was with the big four in American presidential rhetorical history. He um, took a lot of risks. You know, as governor, uh, I, I had, this is one of my interesting discoveries just going through documents, is... Uh, Reagan had opposed Nixon's proposal for the family assistance plan. That was going to be the guaranteed annual income, Pat Moynihan's idea. I, I uh, came to Washington as a, in between high school and right. college as a little intern for Pat Moynihan, and it was the <laughs> summer he was pushing right. FAP, FAP, family assistance plan, enlightened right. conservatives, neoconservatives were supposed to be for it, right. total failure. Well, it... Uh, it well, not it, failure, it just didn't pass. Yeah, I mean, it really it really died at the hands of the left, which is a funny story. Yes. I've known a few... But some on the right who opposed yes, it, Yes, well, right? Ronald Reagan, Reagan, high among them. You know, the National Governors Association, most governors love the idea because it's going to offload their problem to Washington. And so the National Governors Association had a resolution on it, and the vote was 49 to 1 in favor. Is that right? And the one, of course, was Ronald Reagan. Well, turned out, I discovered it, he carried out an extensive campaign against it. He wrote every member of Congress. He testified before the Senate House of Ways and Means Committees and Finance Committees. Uh, and there's one letter I discovered in particular was from a, co- a House co-sponsor of the bill saying, thank oh, he would send his analysis of it to every member. And uh, he gets this letter from a, a member of the House who's a co-sponsor of Nixon's bill saying, I, you know, with all respect, I think you're mistaken. I think it's a good bill and a piece of talking points. It was Congressman George H.W. Bush from Houston. Is that right? And Reagan writes him back saying, no, I think it's terrible. You haven't persuaded me a bit. And here's even more figures from my Department of Finance that show how bad it is. And, of course, you know, a few years later, they're running mates. I mean, it was a guaranteed income. And there were concern- yeah. conservatives liked it in some yes. ways because yes. it would break the welfare dependency. I guess that was right. the argument. And Yeah, Milton Friedman had favorable things to say yes. about it. He thought it, they should abolish everything else first. But, you know, he thought this is a step in the right direction. No, so it was not a, a perfect left-right split on that. But that, And then, of course, the most famous one was... Um, Reagan opposing the Panama Canal Treaty. Yeah, talk about that a little, because people right. have sort of forgotten about that. Yeah, well, you know, that treaty was started under Nixon and Ford, and then Carter finishes it, and Reagan thinks this is a big mistake. He speaks out against it. Conservatives were divided, right? Uh, you had a lot of conservatives, like Bill Buckley, like George Will, who were for it. Wall Street Reagan, Journal, Wall Street Journal and Reagan. I would say the respectable conservative establishment right. was for, thought it was right. 
They didn't love it, but it was right. reasonable, prudent, you know. And Reagan had an instinct about it. He didn't like it. He had an instinct that it was politically powerful, and it turned out to be so when he talked about it on the stump in, in 1976. He, the crowds right. would cheer about it. It's our canal. We built it. Let's keep it. Um, and, uh, and, and so, you know, he led the opposition to it. It had barely passed the Senate in 1978, I think, uh, yeah. with a lot of Republican votes. And, and an awful lot of senators lost their jobs or were defeated in subsequent elections. And there's been arguments from the political scientists was how much of that was a factor or not. And it looks like it might have been some. It may have ruined Howard Baker's chances to be Reagan's running mate in 1980. Hmm. Uh, but I compare that in a lot of ways to um, Churchill's opposition to the India Dominion Bill in the 1930s, right? It totally. divided your own party. Made you something of an outcast, uh, but it, it showed you the resolution of the person, right? Showed you something about them. Yeah, and sort of the appeal to patriotism. We built the canal, right. you know. We we, fair and, we stole it fair and square. Was the famous joke? Yeah. Right. Well, right. well, I remember in the late 1980s, uh, early 1990s, when Panama was kind of a mess, and we invaded, take out Noriega. I had a lot of liberal friends of mine saying, you know, maybe Reagan wasn't wrong about that after all. Right. I mean, the liberals cited as an example of kind of demagoguery. He it worked in the '76 campaign. It saved yeah. him in North Carolina when he had lost the first nine primaries. I think it was, and that. Yeah, but of course, as president, he didn't try to get it back. So right. you know, it was all just talk. But I, I very much agree with you. It, it showed something about his instincts. It did kind of prefigure uh, the, the general shape of his foreign policy and his right. willingness to be break for the establishment consensus and be for rollback, not just. Detente, right. containment, and I mean, Soviet Union is different from Panama, but you know, it's sort of an analogy there, I think. Um, but yeah, no, he, but people don't appreciate how, you know, far out a position that seemed to be in '76, you know, and the yeah. idea that it, it's the one that he rode back to make it a very close race against an incumbent president is, right. is pretty striking. Jeff Bell, who worked for Reagan in '76, yeah. tells a story, you must discuss this in your book too. That Reagan didn't. This is a good, I think, a very good lesson for people, especially conservatives, especially intellectual conservatives who spend a lot of time thinking and then reading and then think they can kind of apply that in a formulaic way to real politics. I think Reagan had a whole bunch of things he was talking about, and he had these index cards, right? And they were sort of each one per issue. I think that's how he sort of gave his speeches. Yeah. And he, apparently, he just gave these speeches, and one of the points was the Panama Canal. And he had a million other points, detente with the Soviet right. Union, our, our arms uh, defense budget, and then a million domestic policy points. And the Panama Canal thing just started to get more and more applause. And so he would move it up to the, right. closer to the front of the speech and spend more time right. on it. Because he was very, this in this respect, he was very adaptive, I think, or I don't know, whatever the right word is. He wasn't yeah. one of these guys, I've got my 20 minutes and I'm just gonna say it. You know, he changed depending on what he learned from the audience. Right. And Jeff thinks that's a very good example. I cited this, I think, at times, stuff he's written. A good example of a, you can have very strong beliefs, but you also can learn from the situation you're in, the politics of the moment, which right. issued a highlight. And if you had predicted two months earlier that he would ride the Panama Canal to a huge right. surge in the late primaries, people would have thought, I don't, I don't know what the current analogy <laughs> right. would be, but it'd be, it was such an offbeat third-tier issue in a way when the Soviet Union's invading countries and it's just after Vietnam right. and, you know. I don't know. It's a very, it, that's right. you discussed that at some length, I think, in your first yeah, volume. But it's, a, it's right. such an interesting case study of how politics can work sometimes. You know. Well, he was early on in seeing that there was great uh, public disapproval of what was going on on the college campuses in the mid '60s. I mean, he starts talking about the in '65 when he's starting to make that run. You'd had the Berkeley Free Speech Movement and some early troubles. It hadn't spun out of control like it did in '68 in so many places yet. And people said this is not showing up on our polls. And Reagan said, "My instinct says that people don't like hmm. this," and he made a big deal out of it. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. The Panama Canal thing. I just, I, I uh, but the, the the idea that you have a bunch of issues, but you you're flexible in which ones you emphasize. Yeah, 
they're all consistent with your views, obviously. Right. It's amazing how much politicians do kind of, especially these days, I think they have a consultant, a bunch of consultants, they take some polls, they decide in October of the year before, that's my issues, and they don't sort of react to right. what's happening around them. Reagan, yeah. I think, did, did, did that a lot. I don't know if that came from Hollywood or from being in movies or something, but there's a kind of flexibility that went with his strong convictions that's impressive. Yeah, well, you know, as you know, Churchill said, uh, you know, genius statesmanship can't be taught or acquired. There's something innate or instinctual about it. And there's certain aspects of Reagan that I can't figure out, and that's one of them. You know, how much of this was conscious thought and how much of it did he just get innately? I do think there's some case to be made for his experience in the 50s touring the country speaking for GE. If you think about that in political terms, he's giving political speeches. So what's he doing? Yeah, tell people about that. Well, that, that's, that's right. That probably is worth uh, mentioning for people who don't know it. You know, he was a spokesman for General Electric, um, and he went and visited the plants in 38 states, traveling from home in Los Angeles by train because he was afraid to fly. He didn't like flying. He didn't right? like flying. There's a funny story about him. But, and by the way, he's reading books on those planes. And we now know he's Trains. reading things like Whitaker Chambers' Witness, Henry Hazlitt's Economics in One Lesson, uh, Hayek's Road to Serfdom. So he's already kind of through with yes. acting at this point in movies. Well, so. he's hosting, well, part of the GE thing was he hosted GE Theater, so he would introduce their movie every Sunday night. And he made a few movies, including, uh, well, oh, shoot, um, I forget the picture he made with Nancy Davis in 1958, oh. I think. So, but he's not a not an A-list A-star. That's actor quite right. at this point. So yeah. he's introducing the stuff on TV, right? And but then he's going around the plants, just talking about whatever he wants to. And, and this is to G workers, mostly. G workers. But you think about it, he's giving political speeches like a candidate would give, but not with an election deadline in, hmm. in front of him. And they talk to these people, they have lunch with them, sit down, and have lunch in the lunchroom, and so he's getting feedback from them. If you think about it, you think about presidential politics like a baseball. He had a decade in the minor leagues. Yeah improving his game and an awful lot of people who get into politics at whatever level um, uh, they they haven't had that experience right and it really shows I think we've been discussing Ronald Reagan and your terrific biography of Ronald Reagan but uh, let's talk about biography I'm really struck I mean I like reading biographies I guess I was told by a couple of teachers that's a good way to learn about politics but they're not really in favor it doesn't seem to me in the academy I'm just curious what your thoughts are about that uh, yeah well oh, oh gosh I could do 20 different approaches to this. Okay. We'll just take a couple. Uh, one is it's been abandoned by, at least large-scale biographies of great figures, has been abandoned by academic historians. So it's now left to journalists uh, and non-academic historians, sometimes to do a decent job, sometimes And they sell not. very well, so it's they funny. The, well. the public likes them, right? John Adams, Hamilton, you know. Yeah, and I think the reason for it among historians, and also sometimes you'll actually have better books about political figures from political scientists than historians, uh, which is ought to be another approach to academic history. Uh, uh, part of it is um, uh, the, the leftist fashion for social forces, social history, uh, semi-Marxist views that it's material forces that are more important than human forces, right? That's part of it. Uh, related to that is uh, the egalitarian temper of our time. Uh, we don't like to acknowledge or celebrate great figures. Or if you're writing about great figures, it's always to knock them down, right? Right. Um, and there's often a lot to work with, like you know, Robert Caro's biography of Lyndon Johnson, which is a really a great project, extraordinary project, I think, um, and very rare these days. Uh, but I think part of it is ideological reasons. In political science, uh, and history has actually followed this, unfortunately, you have the long-running uh, and not brand-new problem of the quantitative fascination of uh, the social sciences, and that undermines appreciation of biographical approaches to acquiring knowledge, right? The idea of statesmanship in political science is uh, ridiculed as non-scientific, can't be studied intelligibly or rigorously, so it's entirely ignored. Uh, so, you know, one of my last conversations with Walter Burns was, he said the... This is Walter voice, Burns, the great 
political right. scientist, exactly. constitutional law, right. student of constitutional law at the American Enterprise Institute. Yeah, right. And he uh, his last conversation I ever had with him was he said the proper method. I can't do his deep voice. The proper method for the study of politics is biography. That great growl he could do when he wanted to emphasize a point. Uh, and then, of course, you know, my other teacher, Harry Jaffa, said the same thing. The, I think something like the proper method for the understanding of politics would be the study of the words and deeds of statesmen. And that's very much out of fashion, of course. Um, and I think that leaves a field wide open for people like me and you know, people like you and others of our friends who work in that field because readers are hungry for it, like you say. Um, but it is an interesting thing to me that um, to pick one avenue into this. You know, you think about the White House. There's a Council of Economic Advisors. It's almost always academic economists from a university who go on leave and go back. There's no council of political advisors. Now, yeah. they all have a political advisor, but it's usually a practitioner. It's Karl Rove or David Axelrod. It's never an academic. Occasionally, have a political scientist as the in-house thinker, you know, Bob Goldwyn under Ford, uh, Moynihan sort of uh, right. in a certain way. But that's uh, Bill Galston under Clinton. Uh, but that's always kind of optional. So isn't it interesting that the discipline that's supposed to be most about governing is uh, sort of le thought least necessary in the practical world of Washington politics? And every few years, the American Political Science Association has a hand-wringing panel about this and can't right. figure it out. But they don't put themselves, they don't try to put themselves in the shoes of those who are governing and, and, right. and try to think through what, you know, what it is like to try to govern and therefore what challenges you face. That's not the way political scientists think of their job and how they write, isn't that right? I mean, they, right. they look at it from above. Right. Or beyond, I guess. Right. You know. Well, and, you know, the other thing is, is um, uh, the, some of the questions involved in the people we call statesmen, you know, Reagan, Churchill, Lincoln, whoever, uh, it's not just their imagination and their intellectual capacities, but really it's the quality of their soul. Well, once you introduce a question like that, unless you uh, come from the tradition of political philosophy of Aristotle and so forth, that question is also thought to be not something that could be intelligibly discussed. And I think this is a great mistake, and it's why... I've picked some fights lately about, uh, you know, political science ought to be one of the most vibrant departments at most universities. And in some universities, it is. It's usually the ones that have more conservatives or liberals who teach it the old-fashioned way. Uh, but you're losing enrollment in political science departments in lots and lots of colleges. The faculties are shrinking in some places, and that's because it bores students to death. Yeah. And that's, uh, I mean, that's, you know, what's the old Talleyrand quote about it's worse than a blunder, it's a crime, or the other way around. It's an incredible blunder, I think, on the part of... Um, uh, the academic world. The other way around. It's worse than a crime. It's a blunder. It's blunder yes, right. right. But, yeah. Yes, absolutely. Not that anyone read. Incidentally, I once read when I was, someone recommended to me, I don't know much about Talleyrand, but Duff Cooper, who was a friend of Churchill's yes. and an amateur historian, I right. guess we would call it today, wrote an excellent biography of Talleyrand, which very much has this character of sort of let's, one political figure writing about another from a different era in a different country. Right. But trying to sort of, you know, understand his decisions, see, you know, see them as he saw them. Not coming from above and saying he's an example of a bourgeois, you know, foreign right. minister or example of uh, Kissingerian politics or one of these theories, <laughs> right. right? Really right. trying to see, you know, what he, the decisions he faced, the choices he made, the thinking he was doing as he and the constraints he faced. Right. So much richer, I think, a way of thinking about politics than the normal political science or historians. Yeah, you'd think the historians yeah. might have defended this, but they actually abandoned it even more than the political scientists, maybe. I don't know why. Exactly. Yeah. 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 I guess it's the modern world, you know, all kinds of modern trends coming together. Right. And this has been a long, this is not a new problem. It goes back to some of the arguments over the, you know, the fact-value distinction and such in the 1950s. I did somewhere stumble across a fragment of a comment from Robert F. Kennedy, of all people. And I forget the context, but the line was, well, I studied government at Harvard, but I learned nothing that was of use to me in my role today as attorney general. 
That's interesting. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, you know, I'm slightly older than you. I'm old enough to remember. I didn't read it at the time. I was seven years old when John Kennedy was elected. But I remember the afterwards hearing about the uh, fad, or you call it, the popularity of Profiles and Courage. Right. Uh, which was, quote, authored by John Kennedy. I guess it was really written by Ted Sorensen. Right. Is that the consensus? Well, that came out, I'm going to say, 58, 59, as he was running for president. And it's, I don't remember how many, right. seven or something, profiles of different American politicians or statesmen and um, I think historians have gone and debunked a lot of the you know work right. and stuff and but it was gripping I read it then I don't know in high school I would say so Kennedy was already been was, was no longer alive and you know he was sort of a figure one knew about if you grew up when I did of course we're interested in and I was yeah. going back to read about politics a little bit and um, but it's interesting that even in that era and that John Kennedy thought it Again, however much work he really did on, he thought it appropriate that right. he write this kind of these biographical sketches, and right. and, I, and and I do think he even maybe thought he learned from them, you know, that, and profiles and courage. It's a virtue, right? I mean, yeah, and you know, that's I hadn't thought of that. It's it, it, you know, the, today when you're running for president, you put out a campaign book that's your right. ideas and policy proposals, and or in President Obama's case, you write a well a memoir at age <laughs> right. you know 40 you right know. <laughs> yeah and uh, uh how refreshing that is in a, in, a, in some way that right. kennedy did it that way i think as i recall wasn't kennedy's senior thesis at harvard called why england slept yeah i think on a study and of about uh, appeasement and yes. essentially uh, disagreeing with his own father about yes, this right i think, I think <laughs> um, so yeah uh, which is kind of interesting um so i mean i think you saw there the sort of the, another example of the older style so it's not necessarily a left right thing either right it shows you well, maybe your books will bring them back. They really should. Was there anything that most influenced you in terms of, I mean, in your own education as sort of the model of how to think about a statesman or a, a, a political moment or problem? I mean, yeah, you know, uh, people sort of ask me some, you know, how I can, you know, people ask you these stories. Right? How did you form your views? Uh, uh, there's a line from Whitaker Chambers to Bill Buckley that uh, I forget who was writing about. This person was conservative by cell structure. I think he was talking about Russell Kirk, maybe. Uh, so I, my parents were big for Goldwater in 64. I was in the first grade. And so I, and I'm from California, so I grew up watching Ronald Reagan up close. And my father was peripherally involved in Republican politics in the state. And it was always axiomatic around my dinner table that um, Reagan would be president someday. Is that right? That's yeah. interesting. And, I don't know. and my dad's inside. He was a businessman. He wasn't an you know, intellectual like your dad. But, but he always said, Reagan is a great voting booth candidate. You might walk in undecided but you're comfortable voting for him. Well, that's a very common sense approach to things. It's very wise that way. Uh, but then, um, it's a funny story. One day, I forget when, but I was always interested in debate and arguing. And one day I happened to tune in, I think in the eighth grade, which is ridiculous. I tune in on firing line. I go, who is this guy? And I don't understand half the words he's saying, but gosh, he looks interesting. Right? So I subscribed to National Review in the eighth grade. <laughs> is that right? Well, that's a great so story. I have to read For those of us who are, are involved in the magazine business, <laughs> right. it's nice to see that a magazine, a small magazine, <laughs> right. made a huge difference. Well, not in those the, days, you had to read National Review not just with an English dictionary, but with a Latin dictionary. Yeah, no, that right? Buckley was a high level. <laughs> right. But that's a, that's a lesson in that, too, right? Yeah. Didn't put, they always tell you, dumb it down to eighth grade level, right. but it's the opposite. It wouldn't have been that's as right. interesting for you yeah, exactly. if there hadn't been words you didn't know and right. you know, quotations of Latin phrases that you had to look up or, right. or not look up and just... <laughs> Yeah, but either <laughs> right. way, I, I've always right. thought, yeah. So, you know, so as an early National Review reader and then later the American Spectator and, and so forth. Uh, uh, and then also, you know, the case of statesmen, before I thought about it in an you know, adult way, my parents took me to Chartwell and Blenheim Palace when I think was 14 years old. Is that right? And, you know, my father, a World War II veteran like your father, would just talk endlessly about Churchill and why it was important. And so I grew up with that, right? It was inculcated that way. Um, and so then, you know, when I went off to graduate school to study with you know, Harry Jaffa and the other people at Claremont, 
Did you go to Claremont to study with them, or is it sort of an accident that you ended up with? Uh, well, I, th- I thought about several places, but I was from Southern California and thought, uh, I wasn't sure I was down for the whole program to get a PhD. I thought I'd try it out because I was curious. I thought I wanted to be a writer, and I didn't know enough to write seriously about politics, and thought, I'm going to grad. It was cheap in those days, too, right? Where did you go to college? I forget. I went to Lewis and Clark in or Portland, oh. Oregon, uh, oh. where, by the way— um, Did you have any influence, particularly influential teachers there? Yeah, or? one. Uh, it's uh, It was James Holton, who uh, wrote the chapter on Cicero and the Strauss-Cropsey oh. anthology and had been a student of Walter Burns. Oh. And he was very good uh, and encouraged me and uh, in a lot of ways. It uh, was very helpful. Um, the best professor I had there, of course. Uh, uh, but so I picked uh, Claremont because it was close to home and wasn't sure if I was down for all this. And um, there were several people there, of course, in those. It wasn't just Jaffa. There was Harold Rood in international relations, uh, Bill Allen. Right. Um, and then Charles Kessler came a couple years later. Um, so, um, and it was, you know, it was a fabulous experience. But when I realized that they took um, not just Lincoln, but Churchill seriously, I thought, well, this is the right place for me because that's my language. Yeah, Jaffa's Crisis of the House Divided. I mean, Jaffa's a complicated figure. Right. <laughs> but uh, that book had a huge influence on me in college. I remember just reading right. it, you know, not being able to put it down, and really what a model of thinking through a historical moment. People forget how much of them. Right. There's brilliant interpretations of those two speeches, of Lincoln's Lyceum speech and the right. temperance speech. There's the whole uh, the big think stuff about the Declaration. But actually, the political narrative at the beginning of the book, the case yeah. for Douglas, I think he calls the first part, yes. the case for Lincoln, and what the actual situation of dealing with slavery in the 1850s was about is extremely, for me, it was just like an eye-opening. And I had been around, you know, I, my, my parents, I, I knew a little more maybe than an average college student, and it already was inclined that way. But the book was just eye-opening and how to think about politics in a serious way while doing justice to political reality without right. escaping into just, you know, not escaping, but without right. elevating into abstraction or political theory. Right. That must have been exciting to be at, at Claremont in those days. It was, yeah. I mean, Jaffa was still in his prime, really. Uh, it, it, his prime cantankerous face, too, unfortunately. That a, was a problematic, and of course. Um, right. Uh, uh, but even in that, you could learn from him. You know, he, he was one of those unusual persons who, uh, his, he was nastier in print than he was in person. Yes, I've you know, In, that in person, he was very genial for the most part. And uh, it, was, it was in print in his letters to people in particular. He'd be have these barbs that his students always thought were, uh, ungenerous, unfair, or taking things too far, and he would just wouldn't retreat on it, though. So when you were, Reagan was president when you were studying, yes. the, and right. at the time, I, I've always, it's hard to put oneself back at that time, did did you know, did you, were you fascinated by Reagan? Did you have a sense that this was really an impressive achievement, or were you more just, you know, of course, we were on his side, but I mean, yeah. not that engaged, I mean. No, I think I, I, think I was. Um, uh, and I was always trying to defend him as much as you can as a you know, 25 or whatever I was. Uh, it may be worth mentioning, I didn't go straight to graduate school. I, came, I graduated in 1980. I came back here for a year to Washington as an intern, back when it was safe to do that, I guess. <laughs> um, uh, and I was an intern for uh, M. Stanton Evans at his Is Journalism right? Center project. Oh, right? Fantastic. So I actually attended the first inaugural address out on the west front of the Capitol, which was a great thrill, right? And uh, was around for a lot of those early days when some of the early battle lines were set and watching it very closely in the paper. But then also, I, you know, even as an intern, you'd exposed to a lot of people in town. And um, uh, so early on, I had a glimpse of the, you know, the first year of the Reagan revolution up close. So that sort of made the full immersion experience, you might yeah, say. Yeah, and I was sure it was Dan Evans. He was a wonderful yeah, right. polemicist, too. Right. A very funny man. Oh, I learned a ton from him. Yeah. yeah. One of my mentors, I consider oh, that's him to be. Great. Right. That's great. That's um, great. Churchill, you, so you, I didn't realize you were 
interest in Churchill went back to teenage <laughs> right. years, but right. you wrote a terrific book, uh, Churchill on Leadership. Um, <laughs> I was just looking at it the other day, though. I don't think I maybe hadn't read it. Already. I, books right. on leadership, I sort of tend not to read, even Churchill. I th- exactly right. So no, I, why did, how did you come right. to do that? Uh, I actually didn't care for the title. I didn't really want to be Churchill on Leadership, but trade publishers are right about what sells and so forth. Uh, I think one of the problems with leadership is it's detached from the serious questions of statesmanship, right? And I think it's also a mistake. There are too many of these books that are really cheesy, like uh, you know, The Leadership Secrets of Attilo the Hun, you know, The Machiavellian Manager. These are really right. trivialized things that are more important. And uh, I, I laugh about what I call my Churchill self-help book, um, uh, the, the, the origin is really kind of amusing. I got stuck one day in, with one of those management leadership gurus who tells you how to manage your time and set priorities. And they only have two or three things to tell you, but you got to pay them the for sense all day of long. You were paying him, or you were just I wasn't. I was you, part of where part I was working, group. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, group is going to do this. This would be worth doing. I thought, this is a waste of time. Uh, uh, these people always pad out. You know, uh, Charlie Peters, people like that. They always pad out what they have to tell you with stories. Right. And this fellow liked to tell Churchill stories from World War II, and I thought, ah, he's just given me an opening to fight back. So every time he would tell a story about Churchill in World War II, I'd raise my hand and say. You know, there's really a better story about Churchill from when he was Minister of Munitions in 1918, on that point, right? Or, you know, when he was Chancellor of the Exchequer in 1926, you know, I knew the story pretty thoroughly. He took it all in good humor. I'm sure the guy was thrilled to have you there. Or <laughs> well, he took it in very good humor. Is that right? and, That's unusual. <laughs> uh, exactly. I thought it was a big test for him, and uh, but it made the day amusing for me. And at the end of the day, he says, gosh, you know a lot about Churchill and seem to have some instinct for the subject. You write, ought to write a book on Churchill's management style. And I thought this was the dumbest idea I'd ever heard. Until a week later, I walked into the bookstore and saw Lincoln on Leadership by some fellow in Texas whose name I forget. And I picked it up and bought it and read it. And it was okay. You know, it wasn't bad. It, you know, it's not what you would recommend as someone to learn seriously about Lincoln. But you know, aspects of how people conduct themselves have some interest. And I thought somebody really ought to do that book, uh, a book like this on Churchill, and before someone screws it up. And there have been some bad books about Churchill and this and that, right? Um, and so actually, I, I do sometimes admit the book is something of a deception, uh, although it does, it is written in a style. And I've had had many CEOs send me notes saying, I really liked your book. I learned useful things from it. Because Churchill did have serious thoughts on organizational behavior and organizational structure that surprised me when I went through the, especially the Martin Gilbert document volumes and saw his managerial memos, for example. Uh, yeah, uh, our, our political theory type right. and quote statesmanship friends probably do undervalue. Yeah, I mean there is actual stuff to be learned right. about running a huge department right. and management and delegation right. and accountability and stuff. So, yeah. yeah it's not, Although at the end of the day, I mean, I think I identified four or five keys to Churchill. But one of them was he liked to make decisions and make them not quickly, isn't hastily, but. He liked to make them firmly and without delaying for a long time. And then again, his imagination and unconventional ways of approaching problems. Uh, and then always driving things forward. You know, don't let meetings just drag on forever. And always put something in writing so you have something to go back to so people don't have differing recollections of what was decided. So very practical things in, in that way that um, seem to be lost sight of in a lot of management theories and so forth. So it's fun to do. It uh, made the New York Times bestseller list. Oh, well, <laughs> um, that's good, yeah. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, the second book uh, also had a title I didn't like. It was the one called Greatness, um, Reagan, Churchill, and the Making of Extraordinary Leaders. I wanted to do like the Meekham book, Franklin Winston. I want to do Ronnie and Winston or something like that. In the course of my uh, work on the large Reagan books, I discovered that, for example, Reagan quoted Churchill more often than every other president combined. Is that right? And Because you can do word searches, right? And it wasn't just the jokes. It was often in serious and substantive ways and often at paragraph length. 
he quotes Churchill once directly and then once indirectly in the Time for Choosing speech, for example, if you go back to that. Uh, and I started writing what I thought would be four or five paragraphs about Reagan's use of Churchill and how their views overlapped. And it ended up being 5,000 words as I kept working through it. And the book was already too long. And so I spun it off as a whole separate book. Uh, and I didn't really pat it out much. I didn't have to. But the most important comparison is on the, the Cold War. Uh, yeah, and I think the, the best two witnesses are really Churchill and Thatcher. Remember, Churchill says in the Iron Curtain speech, World War II could have been prevented without the firing of a single shot if yeah. we'd armed ourselves and stood up the dictators. Peace to strength, you might say. Uh, Churchill did use that phrase in other times. And then you remember what Margaret Thatcher said in the 90s about Reagan. Reagan won the Cold War without the firing of a single shot. Mm. And I never thought to try and get in contact to ask her whether she self-consciously had the Iron Curtain speech in mind, but it seems like the kind of thing the Iron Lady might have done. Yeah, and she was would have remembered that speech, I right. think, and she was old enough. Yes. Note of it, certainly, as yes. a British prime minister, as a right. British conservative politician. Yeah. I mean, Reagan, I suppose, was old enough to have really yes. remembered very well. I mean, he was, would have been, what, 30 years old or something, 29 years old when Churchill became prime minister? When was Reagan born? 1909? 1911. 1911, yes. Imagine being a young, intellectually curious American at that time. I mean, it would be a huge well, I've often wondered, thing to watch Churchill for the next five years, right. you know? I mean... <laughs> Well, you know, Reagan, uh, of course, did talk about listening to Roosevelt's radio addresses, which is one reason why Reagan wanted to do radio addresses later on. I'm, I have a hunch that he probably was in the radio business for most of the 30s. Well, that's right, so he probably heard some I'll of bet those. he heard some Churchill addresses, because Churchill was broadcast a few times over here in the 30s, and then, of course, when he's prime minister. Um, and those addresses are the ones that he... Am I right about this? He gives the speech in the House of Commons, which does not then have right. recording, right? And we recording, go out right. and then it goes over to the BBC and yeah. redoes it. Yeah, for, and that's why for the yeah. British people. And I think a lot of those were, at least in the war, were certainly were, were broadcast here, if I'm not mistaken, yes, uh, right. live as yeah. it were, or a few hours later. But I mean, you know, you know I think a lot of them are not very good. Uh, I mean, it, it, you know, they actually read better than they sound, and that's because Churchill himself, I think, later said to somebody. It's hard to have the same level of energy exactly. sitting in a studio than it is in front of the House of Commons. When given the same speech yes. four hours before. Right. Yeah. It, it, uh, yeah. yeah. I, I find that they kind of they're kind of um, a little bit low energy, as somebody might say today. Right. <laughs> yeah. So I, I hadn't and Reagan. So, and I hadn't quite realized that Reagan was himself such a Churchill um, fan and student. Did he read much about Churchill? You know what? I don't know. You know, Reagan never wrote down what his reading habits were in any detail. Hmm. Uh, but, you know, he would quote some obscure things for Churchill, which suggests to me that he either, and I do know that in his library, that he still has his library in the ranch, and there's several volumes there of his Churchill speeches. There's The Gathering Storm is on the shelves. Wow. Um, and uh, so I think he, he must have been acquainted with it. He, you know, he would quote Churchill, and then he would also have the same logic. Now, Reagan often would have the same logic as Thomas Jefferson on certain things. Uh, but, you know, there was... Um, Churchill in 1949, I think, or 48, said something along the lines of, thank goodness it's free enterprise America that has the nuclear bomb. If Russia or red China had it, surely it would be used for the subjugation of the world. Reagan says exactly the same thing in almost the same words in 1967 hmm. in his televised debate with Robert F. Kennedy that sort of was lost in the memory hole for a long time. Um, and, uh, you know, so exactly the same uh, 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 Understanding of the importance of the moral character of the regimes, as we, we academics would say, right? Uh, and the, the boldness to speak out and say it that way, not the hand-wringing about how awful this is, even though he personally was very dismayed by nuclear weapons. So That debate with Kennedy, yeah. if we could just digress on that for a second. It's funny, we were just talking about it in the office the other day. I can't ah. even remember why it came up, but uh, 
And Fred Barnes was talking about it was he remembered watching it at the time. Oh, right. I guess he was he's a little older than I am, so he was in college maybe or right. something. Just that. And uh, that's an amazing... Now, that's available, I think, on YouTube, right? It is now, yeah. yes. Yeah. For a long time, you couldn't find it. Uh, CBS... Tell ref- people about it a little bit. What's, what's, it's what's, backing up, right? It was a show in 1967 called Town Hall of the World. Something's... Right. <laughs> well, that's, and it really was. the 60s. Yeah, well, it was, though, right? Well, it was in <laughs> On the network sense that, television, right? I mean, well, but uh, logistically, it's kind of interesting, uh, you know, what these days with satellites and everything, but Reagan was in a studio, I think, in Sacramento or maybe Los Angeles. Robert Kennedy was in New York, and this, Reagan's governor of California, governor of California and Kennedy's senator, senator from New York, York and, planning to run. Right. And, well, but then the student, of running president. But then they had a student audience in London. Mm-hmm. And it's mostly British left-wingers who behave very badly. There was one American in the audience, and it was the Rhodes Scholar Bill Bradley. Isn't this funny? That is right? amazing. Uh-huh. Uh, who's the only one who was not. And so they debate by TV hookup. On, by right? TV hookup. Right. right. And uh, the problem for Robert and it's F. It's like Kennedy, town hall. They take questions from the yes, students. Took, yeah. And they were all just, you know, why is America on a genocidal rampage in Vietnam? And, of course, Reagan is rebutting all their premises. Kennedy made the fatal mistake of trying to play the students in the audience and sympathize and agree and mollify them, and they weren't going to have any of that. And that's why he lost the debate so badly. I mean, he knew it instantly that Reagan had clobbered him. CBS... There's uh, a story, I think, I'm right about that. Kennedy comes off this... Yes set and one of his advisors is there yeah says, i'm never debating that man again something yes. like that uh, there's yeah. several different words some of them something like that i mean right there there's uh, is, uh there, some accounts have him use a couple of four-letter words that we can't use even on the internet or shouldn't but <laughs> right, shouldn't. Uh, right um cbs uh, reagan wanted uh, reagan's people want to get a hold of a tape of it and use it for maybe tv commercials when he thought about running and cbs refused oh, to let it out so uh, for a long time you could only get a transcript of it and that was hard to get but, yeah, now it's all on YouTube. It's fun to watch. The other debate, just while we're on debates for a minute, was yeah. debates are interesting, I think. Like, right. You know, they show a lot about candidates. Um, the debate with Bill Buckley on the Panama Canal. Yeah. That was, I don't I guess that's 77, 78, it yes. must be, when right. the canal was a big issue before Congress. Right. And Bill Buckley defends the Panama Canal Treaty, and he is arguably the best debater, I don't know, right. our day, or conservative movement, certainly. And Reagan wins that debate, I think. Yes. Yes, that's right. Uh, I don't know if they put a vote to an audience, but everyone I know I talked to said, yeah, Ray, uh, Buckley was his usual art, witty and clever and uh, you know, flowery self. And, and Reagan, you can see that on YouTube also. Reagan um, was very confident, gave a few jabs back at Buckley with a smile, uh, and but was utterly uh, overpowered him, I thought. Yeah, that's yeah. Right. Yeah, there are depths to Reagan that somehow. Yes. I think that just to get back to Reagan for a minute because sure. I'm thinking more about what you said. I mean, the discipline it would take to disguise your learning or th- having thought about things or in a way seeming simpler than yeah. you are, that's not an easy thing. I mean, it cuts against one's vanity for one thing. At least, yes. You know, and uh, plus, it's just not that easy to do, really. As a, you know, it's not. Uh, it's impressive that Reagan, and that was very disciplined and self conscious on his part, don't you think? I mean,. Absolutely. Uh, part the, of it, the desire maybe, to be underestimated. I mean, I, I think maybe the key there is his complete self-confidence. So you know, the famous sign on his desk: "There's no no limit to what you can accomplish if you don't care who gets the credit." Except he knew that he'd get the credit. You always get the credit or the blame, right? Uh, so, but that translated into his uh, rhetoric. You know, uh, Jimmy Carter and Barack Obama are very similar in being very self-regarding. It's always I, we, and me. Mm-hmm. You can count the sort of personal references. Sometimes they go in the hundreds. Uh, Reagan always liked to say we. Hmm. And he would often say, he would actually say this, uh, almost uh, word for word. Say, I, I say the word we because I had a lot of help from a lot of good people who work with me and for me. That's right. 
and so again, you know, when you know that uh, as a historical matter, you're going to get the credit, you can be more generous and magnanimous about it, right? I think um, that's a, that also sets them apart from a lot of politicians who are, let's face it, insecure people in a lot of ways, right? Uh, that's one of the problems of political life. Right. Um, and so it, he, he's a departure from the, the common run that way. Um, the other part of the discipline of that is, um, so his discipline comes from self-confidence. The other one is, is uh, we mentioned earlier, his dislike of nuclear weapons. Uh, you know, there are people around him who doubt that if it actually, the word came in that the missiles from the Soviet Union had been launched, that Reagan might not order retaliation. Wow. A lot of people think that now. And, and, and he would say, you know, I want to abolish nuclear weapons. And he, the real, people realized he really meant it. And, and he didn't care for the argument that it kept the peace for 40 years, which, you know, true. Uh, uh, and, but he would never openly sort of utter a pacifist sentiment, right? I mean, maybe a better example is, you know, he really didn't like um, uh, ordering troops into battle. He was very risk, not just risk averse, but force averse. You know, in his last year, they were making a case that we ought to get rid of Noriega and Panama. And he says, I don't want to do it. Let George do it if he wants to. I'm not going to do it. Hmm. Uh, and and so and a lot of people thought uh, you may remember some of this from the time. A lot of people thought, why are we pussyfooting around Nicaragua? Let's just send in the Marines and get rid of the Sandinistas. And he always said, we're never doing. He said from the earliest time, I'm not sending American troops to Nicaragua. I'll back the Contras to put pressure on him. But he would never say that publicly because one of his rules was never say never. And you know, after the invasion of Grenada and the Nicaraguans, they said, by the way, if you ever want to get some Americans out of Nicaragua, just call us and we'll help, right? And, yeah. and Castro was nervous, and Reagan said, good, let him be nervous. So he mm. understood the utility of you know, the Machiavellian reputation, that it be feared, right? He understood the utility of that, even while privately uh, believing the opposite, or, or as a policy matter, not wanting to intervene. But he had the discipline to not blurt that out, yeah. you might say. That's impressive. Yeah. I want to take advantage of having you here to talk a little bit about American conservatism, since you've been a student of <laughs> right. it, part of it, really. And, uh, I mean, young people, I think, coming up, these are names from the past, Reagan, yes, Buckley, right. Chambers. But I guess what would you recommend people read? What, what, what you know, what, what, what would, if people wanted to get a sense of, uh, A, do you think that tradition remains a, a viable and important tradition? Are we somehow in some post-conservative movement moment, or is, does, does that still remain a kind of uh, a body of work and a body of effort? worth building on and continuing? And if so, kind of who in particular would you oh, gosh. cite and recommend? That's a really hard question I won't hold right you to, It doesn't have to be comprehensive, right. but two or three, some bright AI intern comes into your office yeah. or bright University of California, Berkeley, one of the right. seven conservative kids there, or, or not, or a liberal kid there comes right. in and says, hey, I want to know something about conservatism, American conservatism, not the Aristotle, that's fine, right. Burke, you know, that's all deep stuff, but yeah. who, who's lived in the 20th or 21st century where would you what would you recommend what, what or what influenced you? We've discussed that a little bit, but uh. yeah, I mean the, the difficulty here is I'm feeling very old now, and and I've never been more sort of confused and baffled and worried than I am right now from obvious present circumstances um, of the presidential race. But beyond all that, right? We've we've seen this consistent slippage to, I mean, who would have thought that uh, uh, <laughs> I'd say the sexual revolution would now descend to you know bathrooms, yeah, and how we call people and so forth, right? I mean, this is really um, uh, beyond uh, absurd. and But it barrels along with uh, barely any any speed bumps to it. Um, and so, you know, I mean, I was, um, I found uh, a lot of the contemporary authors like Buckley, Milton Friedman, um, Hayek, they were all still alive when I was growing up and reading, right? And so they were, met, I met all of them at some point. Mm -hmm. And 
Uh, and I think there are a lot of people, I mean, our friends like Jonah Goldberg, I think, writes some terrific work. I recommend his books to people. Um, he struggles with the fact that he's so funny that he, I know, he people wants don't to be taken seriously, serious right? And, but that's okay. You can read people you, who, right. who are from an earlier generation. I do think yeah. it's useful. I mean, we despair a little bit today, but right. look at what Buckley faced at 55. Exactly. Nothing. Yeah. No right. conservative movement, no conservative institutions, no magazines, a few right. vague kind of, you know, <laughs> right. I mean, oddballs. I mean, very impressive, incidentally, right. oddballs, but, you know, Southern agrarians or libertarians right. or Albert J. Nock, right. Hayek, this Austrian economist who couldn't, yeah. you know, I mean, uh, when you see what Buckley overcame, I think it's one could be more hopeful, perhaps. But. Yeah, I mean, I guess I do still recommend that people read things. I mean, if you want to do the history of it, George Nash's book on the conservative intellectual movement is still good. It ought to be updated, I think, because he breaks off in 75. That's a long time ago now. Um, I still do think people ought to read some of the really serious books, like uh, I think Hayek's be best book is The Constitution of Liberty, more than The Road to Serfdom, by quite a lot. It's a big book, big commitment to read it. Uh, but I think it holds up extremely well. It, it published in 1961, and I... I I've been saying now for the last seven plus years, it reads like a Thomistic commentary of the Obama administration's wow. political strategy. That's one way of thinking of it. Uh, you mentioned Jaffa's book, Crisis of the House Divided, I think is a, you know, more than just a study of Lincoln in a lot of ways. Um, books like that, I think, uh, with serious people who really want to get into it. Did um, Chambers have a big effect on you or did you, or not? Yes, uh, and that's, I've tried to teach Chambers to students these days and with mixed success. Cause is that right? Because the Cold War is so remote and, you know, the his Chambers, you know, that's a long time ago and, you know, this book, Joe McCarthy guy's out there somewhere and right. some students get it and find it interesting, but it's, I haven't figured out how to make that work really well. Um, yes, I read Chambers and as an undergraduate and, uh, you know, first that story was still very current in a lot of ways. The Weinstein, Alan Weinstein book really nailed down the case, came out in, what, a 78, I think. Something like that, yeah. uh, and, um, and then his writing style is so extraordinary, yeah. right, and deeply moving. And yeah. So um, I still go back and reread him now and then. Uh, I've been thinking for a while about writing an article about, you know, what would Chambers think now? Because he would have been such a pessimist, right? Yes. Um, and but willing to join the losing side. Willing to join the losing side, side. He That's thought right. the losing side. right. Then we um, all thought for a while after 1989, well, hey, it was yeah. the winning side. Yeah. Well, maybe not, I don't know. <laughs> well, that's right, yeah. Uh, there was a line of Jaffa's I found from a lecture he gave in 1991 where he says, uh, or maybe early 1992, and I remember the exact words. I have a quote in my forthcoming book, but he says, things are about to get worse. Says, really? Yeah, he, he really nailed it. He says that, he said, now that the, the foreign enemy is gone, that's sort of this rough association with the ideological pole, it's the, the, the ideological left is not going to be reborn in different and more threatening ways to Western civilization. At the time, we all thought with Francis Fukuyama, you know, liberalism of the old-fashioned sense has triumphed and democracy is on the march. And it looks like he was right to be pessimistic about that. And Jaffa and Chambers, uh, that was something that struck me. That one of the first things Jaffa said in my first cl class with him, the first minute was, we're the, the West is in profound crisis. Hmm. I thought, that sounds like Whitaker Chambers. Now, Jaffa thought he had more answers to it. Long story, and Chambers remained pessimistic, right? He thought he was on the losing side. Yeah, and died um, in 1960, so he... Yes, uh, right. The Chambers-Buckley letters are really fantastic. And they I don't even know if are. that's in print or available. I have some old copy of it, yeah. but there's really some moving stuff and wonderful Absolutely. stuff. Absolutely, yeah. In there. Anything else you've learned from teaching students that you want to share here in terms of what, what, what works in terms of, you know, what... <laughs> what they're interested in? Yes. Uh, and also, uh, you want to reassure me about the current generation of students now that well, yeah, we're not. We're not. <laughs> well, you know, they're like I sound like an old, foggy, grumpy person here. You know, kids are always kids, right? They're always hopeful and idealistic and uh, naive, and you know, the whole mixed bag of what youth is like in, in all generations, uh, overpowered by the culture around them. 
uh, I, I do think I was smiling because um, I find that um, great opening for those of us who are fortunate enough to be in academia with good students is, um, and sometimes I like to uh, tweak the liberal professors, not by complaining about their ideology, but say, you know, the real problem, I don't make it personalized, I say the real problem with especially the narrowly specialized way we do the social sciences and and the sort of narrow fads in the humanities is that we're boring students to death. I think that's why one of the reasons why the number of people majoring in social sciences and humanities has been plummeting for 25 years. It wasn't just since the economic crisis of 2008. It's been going on since 1980 or earlier. Hmm. Uh, and I said, we're boring students to death. And so my experience so far, you know, my year at Colorado, where, you know, I was an inmate, as I say, there for a year, right. um, is that... Uh, Boulder, Berkeley, you're right. really swimming in <laughs> what I say? complicated you know, ponds there, right? Boulder wasn't weird enough. I had to go for uh, Berkeley, right? That's the good. Death Star, right? I don't yeah. know. Uh, it, 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 the students like our style of engaging the subject, even when they don't. I've had so many liberal students say to me, I don't think I agree with your viewpoint, but gosh, this was interesting and fun and engaging. I really liked it. And they give me high evaluations and... Because uh, we teach the old-fashioned way about serious ideas, and you know, we'll actually say, I'll actually say, if you really want to understand the Constitution, there's a lot of parts to it beyond the legal language, and ultimately, it does involve the character of your soul. Who talks like this anymore, except right. for you know Harvey Mansfield and people like us? And students like that; they respond to that. Uh, a lot of students want a certain element of seriousness they don't get from higher education these days. Um, I mean, I found just in my guest teaching occasionally that right. teaching a text, I think which seems dry and sort of yeah. difficult, actually students like and appreciate that you're together with them reading something yes. and you're not just lecturing to them about things that you presumably know much more about than they do. Right. And they can't really challenge you because if you're an expert on something and they're just a 19-year-old, how are they going to tell right. you that you're wrong about your lecture on the following 20-year period? Or the, right. Whereas a text, you can actually both look at it and they can right. say, what about this? You know, And often they do have real insights. Um, yes. And yeah. I don't know, I, I think in that respect, the sort of Straussian focus on texts, uh, yeah. it's the main reason for it. I wouldn't, maybe wouldn't quite say, but or maybe it is one of the main reasons for it, but as a teaching matter, and I'm including here the Gettysburg Address or the Federalist right. Papers or not, not just works of political philosophy, is very, is so much better. It's so much more egalitarian in a funny way. It yes. takes the, lets the student, puts the student more on a par with the, with the teacher than lecturing to the student about things the student couldn't. Well, it's a genuine openness. Yeah, or, you know, I mean, the other... What is a textbook? A textbook is just a lecture put in print, right? And the textbooks say this is how you should think about John Stuart Mill or something. And yeah, you know, why don't you just read Mill and see what he said and think about it for yourself, right? Yeah, text, not textbooks. I think that's right. a good. Uh, yeah, yeah. But I was shocked. I mean, textbooks were it was not permissible to assign textbooks. I'd say in most of the courses, some government department courses when I was at Harvard, and then I uh -huh. and I went back about five ten years ago, and yeah, they were using textbooks. It's easier. Yeah. You know, it's more convenient. Some of them are good. You know, good textbooks. Good professors right. wrote good textbooks. Still, it's something about reading the textbook rather than the yeah. text itself that is does not seem to be what liberal education or higher education should be about. But that's just my crotchety view, right. I suppose. You so know. I don't know, like you, I'm, I'm a happy warrior and, and often optimistic against all odds. And so I like the students I meet. And even the ones I don't agree with, I find it pleasant people. And uh, I mean, I suppose the nasty ones avoid me, but... Um, uh, so I'm, I'm having a good time. Well, that's a very good note on which to conclude. Thanks. Surprisingly cheerful <laughs> and uh, even maybe honest in your case. Uh, not even a noble lie, right? <laughs> right. But you're, you're, you're such a good-natured person. Steve, thanks so much for joining well, me you, here. Uh, and thank you for joining us on Conversations.